Section 5 of Letters to a Friend by John Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Fleischman. Letters from 1870. Yosemite, April 5th, 1870. I wish you were here today, for our rocks are again decked with deep snow. Two days ago, a big gray cloud collared barometer dome. The vast booming column of the upper falls was swayed like a shred of loose mist by broken pieces of storm that struck it suddenly, occasionally bending it backwards to the very top of the cliff, making it hang sometimes more than a minute like an inverted bow edged with comets. A cloud upon the dome and these ever-varying rockings and bendings of the falls are sure storm signs. But yesterday morning's sky was clear and the sun poured the usual quantity of the balmiest spring sunshine into the blue ether of our valley gulf. But ere long, ragged lumps of cloud began to appear all along the valley rim, coming gradually into closer ranks and rising higher like rock additions to the walls. From the top of these cloud banks, fleecy fingers arched out from both sides and met over the middle of the meadows, gradually thickening and blackening, until at night, big confident snowflakes began to fall. We thought that the last snow harvest had been withered and reaped long ago by the glowing sun, for the bluebirds and robins sang spring, and so also did the bland, unsteady winds, and the brown meadow opposite the house was spotted here and there with blue violets. Carrick spikes were shooting up through the dead leaves, and the cherry and briar rose were unfolding their leaves, and besides these, spring wrote many a sweet mark and word that I cannot tell. But snow fell all the hours of today, in cold winter earnest, and now at evening there rests upon rocks, trees, and weeds as full and ripe a harvest of snow flowers as I ever beheld in the stormiest, most opaque days of midwinter. April 13th. About twelve inches of snow fell in that last snowstorm. It disappeared as suddenly as it came, snatched away hastily almost before it had time to melt, as if a mistake had been made in allowing it to come here at all. A week of spring days, bright in every hour, without a stain or thought of the storm, came in glorious colors, giving still greater pledges of happy life to every living creature of the spring. But a loud, energetic snowstorm possessed every hour of yesterday. Every tree and broken weed bloomed yet once more. All summer distinctions were leveled off. All plants and the very rocks and streams were equally polypetalous. This morning, winter had everything in the valley. The snow drifted about in the frosty wind like meal, and the falls were muffled in thick sheets of frozen spray. Thus do winter and spring leap into the valley by turns, each remaining long enough to form a small season or climate of its own, or going and coming squarely in a single day. Whitney says that the bottom has fallen out of the rocks here, which I most devoutly disbelieve. Well, the bottom frequently falls out of these winter clouds and climates. It is seldom that any long transition slant exists between dark and bright days, in this narrow world of rocks. I know that you are enchanted 
with the April loveliness of your new home. You enjoy the most precious kind of sunshine, and by this time, flower patches cover the hills about Oakland like colored clouds. I would like to visit these broad, outspread blotches of social flowers that are so characteristic of your hills, but far rather would I see and feel the flowers that are now at Fountain Lake and the lakes of Madison. Mrs. Hutchings thought of sending you a bulb of the California lily by mail, but found it too large. She wished to be remembered to you. Your squirrel is very happy. She is a rare creature. I hope to see you and the doctor soon in the valley. I have a great deal to say to you, which I will not try to write. Remember me most cordially to the doctor and to Allie and all the boys. I am much obliged to you for those botanical notes, etc., and I am ever most cordially yours, John Muir. Here is a moss with a globular capsule and a squinted, cowl-shaped calyptra. Do you know it? Yosemite, May 17, 1870. Our valley is just gushing, throbbing full of open, absorbable beauty, and I feel that I must tell you about it. I am lonely among my enjoyments. The valley is full of visitors, but I have no one to talk to. The season that is with us now is about what corresponds to full-fledged spring in Wisconsin. The oaks are in full leaf and have shoots long enough to bend over and move in the wind. The good old bracken is waist-high already, and almost all the rock ferns have their outermost fronds unrolled. Spring is in full power and is steadily reaching higher like a shadow and will soon reach the topmost horizon of rocks. The buds of the poplar opened on the 19th of last month, those of the oaks on the 24th. May 1st was a fine, hopeful, healthful, cool, bright day, with plenty of the fragrance of new leaves and flowers, and of the music of bugs and birds. From the 5th to the 14th was extremely warm, the thermometer averaging about 85 degrees at noon in shade. Craggy banks of cumuli became common about Storm King and the Dome. Flowers came in troops. The upper snows melted very fast, raising the falls to their highest pitch of glory. The waters of the Yosemite Fall no longer float softly and downily like hanks of spent rockets, but shoot at once to the bottom with tremendous energy. There is at least ten times the amount of water in the valley that there was when you were here. In crossing the valley, we had to sail in the boat. The river paid but little attention to its banks, flowing over the meadow in great river-like sheets. But last Sunday, 15th, was a dark day. The rich streams of heat and light were withheld. The thermometer fell suddenly to 35 degrees, and down among the verdant banks of new leaves and groves of half-open ferns and thick settlements of confident flowers, came heavy snow and big blinding flakes, coming down with a steady gait and taking their places gracefully upon shrinking leaves and petals as if they were doing exactly right. The whole day was snowy and stormy like a piece of early winter. Snow fell also on the 16th. A good many of the ferns and delicate flowers are killed. There are about 50 visitors in the valley at present. When are you and the doctor coming? 
Mr. Hutchings has not yet returned from Washington, and so I will be here all summer. I have not heard from you since January. I had a letter the other day from Professor Butler. He has been glancing and twinkling about among the towns of all the states at a most unsubstantial velocity. Did you see the gold of the walking plains this spring? There is a later gold in October, which you must see. Remember me warmly to Dr. Carr and all the boys, and I remain always most cordially yours, John Muir. Yosemite via Big Oak Flat. Yosemite, Sunday, May 29, 1870. I received your apology two days ago and ran my eyes hastily over it three or four lines at a time to find the place that would say you were coming. But you fear that you cannot come at all and only hope that the doctor may. But I shall continue to look for you nevertheless. The Chicago party you speak of were here and away again before your letter arrived. All sorts of human stuff is being poured into our valley this year, and the blank, fleshly apathy with which most of it comes in contact with the rock and water spirits of the place is most amazing. I do not wonder that the thought of such people being here, Mrs. Carr, makes you mad. But after all, Mrs. Carr, they are about harmless. They climb sprawlingly to their saddles like overgrown frogs, pulling themselves up a stream bank through the bent sedges, ride up the valley with about as much emotion as the horses they ride upon, and comfortable when they have done it all, and long for the safety and flatness of their proper homes. In your first letter to the valley, you complain of the desecrating influences of the fashionable hordes about to visit here, and say that you mean to come only once more, and into the beyond. I am pretty sure that you are wrong in saying and feeling so, for the tide of visitors will float slowly about the bottom of the valley, as a harmless scum, collecting in hotel and saloon eddies, leaving the rocks and falls eloquent as ever, an instinct with imperishable beauty and greatness. And recollect that the top of the valley is more than halfway to real heaven, and the Lord has many mansions away in the Sierra, equal in power and glory to Yosemite, though not quite so open. And I venture to say that you will yet see the valley many times, both in and out of the body. I am glad you are going to the coast mountains to sleep on Diablo, Angelo, ere this. I am sure that you will be lifted above all the effects of your material work, there is a precious natural charm in sleeping under the open, starry sky. You will have a very perfect view of the walking valley and the snowy, pearly wall of the Sierra Nevada. I lay for weeks last summer upon a bed of pine leaves at the edge of a gentian meadow in full view of Mount Dana. Mrs. Hutchings says that the lily bulbs were so far advanced in their growth when she dug some to send you that they could not be packed without being broken. But I'm going to be here all summer, and I know where the grandest plantation of these lilies grow, and I will box up as many of them as you wish, together with as many other Yosemite things as you may ask for, and send them out to you before the pack train makes its last trip. I know the spirea you speak of. It is abundant all around the top of the valley and on the rocks at Lake Tenaya, and reaches almost to the very summit about Mount Dana. 
There is also a purple one, very abundant, on the fringe meadows of Yosemite Creek, a mile or two back from the brink of the falls. Of course, it will be a source of keen pleasure to me to procure you anything you may desire. I should like to see that ground again. I saw some in Cuba, but they did not exceed 25 or 30 feet in height. I have thought of a walk in the wild gardens of Honolulu, and now that you speak of my going there, it becomes very probable, as you seem to understand me better than I do myself. I have no square idea about the time I shall get myself away from here. I shall at least stay till you come. I fear that the agave will be in the spirit world ere that time. You say that I ought to have such a place as you saw in the gardens of that mile and a half of climate. Well, I think those lemon and orange groves would do, perhaps, to make a living. But for a garden, I should not have anything less than a piece of pure nature. I was reading Thoreau's Maine Woods a short time ago. As described by him, these woods are exactly like those of Canada West. How I long to meet Linnea and Cayogenes Hispidula once more. I would rather see these two children of the evergreen woods than all the 27 species of palm that Agassiz met on the Amazons. These summer days go on calmly and evenly. Scarce a mark of the frost and snow of the 15th is visible. The brackens are four or five feet high already. The earliest azaleas have opened, and the whole crop of bulbs is ready to burst. The river does not overflow its banks now, but it is exactly brimful. The thermometer averages about 75 degrees at noon. We have sunshine every morning from a bright blue sky. Ranges of cumuli appear towards the summits with neat regularity every day about 11 o'clock, making a splendid background for the South Dome. In a few hours, these clouds disappear and give up the sky to sunny evening. Mr. Hutchings arrived here from Washington a week ago. There are 60 or 70 visitors here at present. I have received only two letters from you this winter and spring, dated January 22nd and May 7th. I kissed your untamed one for you. She wishes that she knew the way to Oakland, that she might come to you. Remember me to the doctor and all your boys and to your little Allie. I remain ever yours most cordially, J. Muir. 1870. I am very, very blessed. The valley is full of people, but they do not annoy me. I revolve in pathless places and in higher rocks than the world and his ribbony wife can reach. Had I not been blunted by hard work in the mill and crazed by Sabbath raids among the high places of this heaven, I would have written you long since. I have spent every Sabbath for the last two months in the spirit world, screaming among the peaks and outside meadows like a Negro Methodist in revival time, and every intervening clump of weekdays in trying to fix down and assimilate my shapeless harvests of revealed glory into the spirit and into the common earth of my existence. And I am rich, rich beyond measure, not in rectangular blocks of sifted knowledge or in thin sheets of beauty hung picture-like about the walls of memory, but in unselected atmospheres of terrestrial glory 
diffused evenly throughout my whole substance. Your Brooksian letters I have read with a great deal of interest. They are so full of the spice and poetry of unmingled nature, and in many places they express my own present feelings very fully. Quoting from your forest glen, Without anxiety and without expectation, all my days come and go, mixed with such sweetness to every sense. And again, I don't know anything of time and but little of space. My whole being seemed to open to the sun. All this I do most comprehensively appreciate, and am just beginning to know how fully congenial you are. Would that you could share my mountain enjoyments in all my wanderings through nature's beauty, whether it be among the ferns at my cabin door, or in the high meadows and peaks, or amid the spray and music of waterfalls, you are the first to meet me, and I often speak to you as verily present in the flesh. Last Sabbath I was baptized in the irised foam of the Vernal, and in the divine snow of Nevada, and you were there also, and stood in real presence by the sheet of joyous rapids below the bridge. I am glad to know that McClure and McChesney have told you of our night with Upper Yosemite. Oh, what a world is there, I passed. No, I had another night there, two weeks ago, entering as far within the veil amid equal glory, together with Mr. Frank Shapley of Boston. Mr. Shapley is an artist, and I like him. He has been here six weeks and has just left for home. I told him to see you and to show you his paintings. He is acquainted with Charles Sanderson and Mrs. Waterston. Mrs. Waterston left the valley before your letter reached me, but one morning, about sunrise, an old lady came to the mill and asked me if I was the man who was so fond of flowers, and we had a very earnest and ceremonious chat about the valley and about the beyond. She is made of better stuff than most of the people of that heathen town of Boston, and so also is Shapley. Mrs. Yelverton is here and is going to stop a good while. Mrs. Waterston told her to find me, and we are pretty well acquainted now. She told me the other day she was going to write a Yosemite novel, and that Squirrel and I were going into it. I was glad to find that she knew you. I have not seen Professor LeConte. Perhaps he is stopping at one of the other hotels. Has Mrs. Rapley or Mr. Colby told you about our camping in the spruce woods on the south rim of the valley, and of our walk at daybreak to the top of the Sentinel Dome to see the sun rise out of the crown peaks of beyond? About a week ago at daybreak, I started up the mountain near Glacier Point to see Pohono in its upper woods and to study the kind of life it lived up there. I had a glorious day and reached my cabin at daylight by walking all night. Oh, what a night among those moon shadows. It was seven o'clock a.m. when I reached the top of the cathedral rocks, a most glorious 22 hours of life amid nameless peaks and meadows and the upper cataracts of Pohono. Mr. Hutchings told me next morning that I had done two or three days climbing in one and that I was shortening my life, but I had a whole lifetime of enjoyment and I care but little for the arithmetical length of days. I can hardly realize that I have not yet seen you here. I thank you for sending me so many friends, 
but I am waiting for you. I am going up the mountain soon to see your lily garden at the top of Indian Canyon. Let the Pacific Islands lie. My love to Allie and all your boys and to the doctor. Tell him that I have been tracing glaciers in all the principal canyons towards the summit. Ever thine, J. Muir. Yosemite, August 20th, 1870. I have just returned from a ten days ramble with Professor LeConte and his students in the beyond, and oh, we have had a most glorious season of terrestrial grace. I do wish I could ramble ten days of equal size in very heaven, that I could compare its scenery with that of Bloody Canyon and the Tuolumne Meadows and Lake Tenaya and Mount Dana. Our first camp after leaving the valley was at Eagle Point, overlooking the valley on the north side, from which a much better general view of the valley and the high crests of the Sierra beyond is obtained than from Inspiration Point. There we watched the long shadows of sunset upon the living map at our feet, and, in the later darkness, half-silvered by the moon, went far out of human cares and human civilization. Our next camp was at Lake Tenaya, one of the countless multitudes of starry gems that make this topmost mountain land to sparkle like a sky. After moonrise, Lecomte and I walked to the lake shore and climbed upon a big sofa-shaped rock that stood islet-like a little way out in the shallow water. And here we found another bounteous throne of earthly grace. And I doubt if John and Patmos saw grander visions than we. And you were remembered there, and we cordially wished you with us. Our next sweet home was upon the velvet gentian meadows of the South Tuolumne. Here we feasted upon soda and burnt ashy cakes, and stood an hour in a frigid rain with our limbs bent forward like Lombardy poplars in a gale. But ere sunset the black clouds departed, our shins were straightened at a glowing fire, we forgot the cold and all about half-raw mutton and alkaline cakes. The grossest of our earthly coils was shaken off, and ere the last slant sunbeams left the dripping meadow and spiry mountain peaks, we were again in the third alpine heaven, and saw and heard things equal in glory to the purest and best of Yosemite itself. Our next camp was beneath a big gray rock at the foot of Mount Dana. Here we had another rainstorm, which drove us beneath our rock, where we lay in complicated confusion, our forty limbs woven into a knotty piece of tissue, compact as felt. Next day we worshipped upon high places, on the brown cone of Dana, and returned to our rock. Next day walked among the flowers and cascades of Bloody Canyon, and camped at the lake, rode next day to the volcanic cone nearest to the lake, and bade farewell to the party, and climbed to the highest crater in the whole range south of the Mono Lake. Well, I shall not try to tell you anything, as it is unnecessary. Professor LeConte, whose company I enjoyed exceedingly, will tell you all. Ask him in particular to tell you about our camp meeting on the Tenaya Rock. I will send you a few choice mountain plant children by Mrs. Yelverton. If there is anything in particular that you want, let me know. Mrs. Yelverton will not leave the valley for some weeks, and you have time to write. I am ever your friend, J. Muir. Tuolumne River, 
two miles below LaGrange, November 4th, 1870. Yours of October 2nd reached me a few days since. The Amazon and Andes have been in all my thoughts for many years, and I am sure that I shall meet them some day ere I die, or become settled and civilized and useful. I am obliged to you for all this information. I have studied many paths and plans for the interior of South America, but none so easy and sure ever appeared as this of your letter. I thought of landing at Guayaquil and crossing the mountains to the Amazon, floating to Para, subsisting on berries and quinine, but to steam along the palmy shores with company and comforts is perhaps more practical, though not so pleasant. Hawthorne says that steam spiritualizes travel, but I think that it squarely degrades and materializes travel. However, flies and fevers have to be considered in this case. I am glad that Ned has gone. The woods of the Perus will be a grand place for the growth of men. It must be that I am going soon, for you have shown me the way. People say that my wanderings are very mazy and methodless, but they are all known to you in some way before I think of them. You are a prophet in the concerns of my little outside life, and pray what says the Spirit about my final escape from Yosemite. You saw me at these rock altars years ago, and I think I shall remain among them until you take me away. I reached this place last month by following the Merced out of the valley and through all its canyons to the plains above Snelling, a most glorious walk. I intended returning to the valley ere this, but Mr. Delaney, the man with whom I am stopping at present, would not allow me to leave before I had plowed his field, and so I will not be likely to see Yosemite again before January, when I shall have a grand journey over the snow. Mrs. Yelverton told me, before I started upon my river explorations, that she would likely be in Oakland in two weeks, and so I made up a package for you of lily bulbs, cones, ferns, etc. But she wrote me a few days ago that she was still in the valley. I find that a portion of my specimens collected in the last two years and left at this place and Hopeton are not very well cared for, and I have concluded to send them to you. I will ship them in a few days by express, and I will be down myself perhaps in about a year. If there is anything in these specimens that the doctor can make use of in his lectures, tell him to do so freely, of course. The purple of these plains and of this whole round sky is very impressively glorious after a year in the deep rocks. People all throughout this section are beginning to hear of Dr. Carr. He accomplishes a wonderful amount of work. My love to Allie and to the doctor and I am ever most cordially yours, John Muir. Addressed to Snelling for the next few months. End of section 5